Hello everyone, it's Adam from Ucrafold24 with episode 2 of Meeting the 92. I'm at the start of this adventure this season, still got 90 more clubs to go, but what a place to be. One of the brand new teams to the Football League next season, Sutton United, everybody. It's been a following, I've been following the non-league for many, many years and it's great to see Sutton coming up out of the National League and I'm sure they'll do the National League proud next year. And joining me today to discuss all the goings on over there is Ahmed Noor. Good afternoon, good evening, good night. Ahmed, how are you? Uh, I mean, it's well and truly afternoon over here in Blighty, but um, yes, very well, thank you. Coping well, obviously, with uh, the, the period between now and the European Championships, which is coming up soon, but Still plays on my mind the uh, how big an achievement Sutton's promotion is and will probably live in the memory of many for years to come. And it's an honour to be here today to be able to, you know, represent the club, hopefully in as good a light as I possibly can. Or make them look good is, is the best way I can put it. <laughs> I'm sure you will. I'm really looking forward to learning a bit more of the, the goings on down there. So watching from a distance. It's a, really is a club to be proud of. So looking forward to this one today. Uh, but before we get started, big shout out to Stell as always at Shoot the Defence. Stell, thank you so much for giving me the, the platform to bring these messages to the wider world. So cheers for you. Uh, but Ahmed, you're the star of the show today. Uh, yeah. You are the match day commentator for Sutton United. Over the past 12 months, it's been a, in particularly a, a hardcore job. But how did you first get involved with uh, the club? How you know What was your sort of first in, startings in fo- the footballing world? I mean, I like to always tell people my love for football has been, you know, a, long, a long-winded relationship. It's like that girlfriend you have for a long time. It's a rocky relationship at times, but you go through, you go through it. And for me, football has always been a big part of my life. I used to play it. I used to be able to compete at a reasonable level. I was, was, you know, every dream, a fan's dream, a player's dream is always to get to the Champions League or the World Cup. I was never modestly ever going to reach that level. But uh, when I stopped, I thought, how best to stay involved in the game? I used to, during a little period when I was away from England in Africa, as I have my heritage is Somalian, I was constantly talking over the Arabian commentator because I don't understand Arabic, but I could no, I could identify the player who he played for, his statistics. I was just doing this on my own in a not well acoustic, not a very acoustic room, but the echo was quite strong in African houses. You can hear quite far, <laughs> and I just I just did it out of like sheer you know sheer enthusiasm and. I think a good example was France v Belgium in 2015. I just commentated over that. I think Belgium won 2-0. And Fellaini scored a... Marin Fellaini scored a header from a nice cross on the right-hand side. And I think two of the houses down the street could hear my voice. (laughs) So, I I don't know how they haven't come over and thumped my door down, but that was where really my interest peaked for... um, I, my want to become a commentator. So, as soon as I got back, in, got back to England. I spent a few years, obviously, rekindling myself to the country again and making sure, you know, I sorted stuff out. Went to uni for the first for a couple of years doing medical science. Didn't enjoy it. Um, more the stress of it. I, I missed football, 
and then went to uh, a university that did sports journalism. And they spoke heavily about the National League. And this is where obviously the role into where I start, a Sutton comes in. Mm-hmm. They started heavily saying, talking about the National League, that it gives you a chance to volunteer. You're encouraged to do so many things uh, at no league level that you wouldn't be able to get away with in the Premier League. I mean, I'm blessed to say that I'm able to do certain things in and around a Premier League club or as such do so for a much bigger association in the in the UK but um beyond that they always I always focused on the idea of what if I go out and do this instead of just sitting in a place where I could learn it like with also someone drones off for two hours telling me how to do it I can learn my craft I can own it hone it and be able to you know show the world there's a different way to show your enthusiasm for the game and share it with many around us and they suggested go and get your opportunities at national league level so at the end of the 1819 season i emailed the press officer at our club uh for the first time asking him about this you know commentary idea how is how this came about you will wonder is because i have been to a certain match before i contacted them it was a 1-1 draw against chesterfield in october of 2018 and I can, again, I can detail the match to a T. I think Martin Allen was the manager of Chesterfield that night. Paul Doswell was for Sutton. And Allen was this brash, you know, confident <laughs> character on the touchline, just make, making certain that, with especially a name like Chesterfield, there were some high expectations because their history, the Football League, and how far they went in the FA Cup way back when. This particular character, though, was so commanding, and he always demanded something from his team. It was Funny when I heard he got sacked a few weeks later, but um, he, came, he I saw, I looked at him. It was I looked at Doswell on the other, and Doswell was the opposite of that. He's and I think with stories that I've been told about him, I can understand why he was such a you know charismatic, but also you know straight to the point kind of person. He'll tell you what he thinks, and if you don't agree with it, it you know it's your loss. But um, it was because of that game, Jonah Younger scored the first, and Jonathan Smith equalised with a ninth minute long-range effort it was that game that enthusiasm enthused me to go into Sutton and obviously at the mm-hmm. end of that season contacted them they opened the doors to me and since then I have to say have been so so good with everything that they've done for not only my benefit but to everyone I've worked with because we'll get into it a little bit more later I'm sure but the team I work with there isn't you know your typical you know like proper TV company or you, you don't you don't expect to see professional broadcasting standards at our club but we do our best to provide the best content we can and it is a right old challenge but these guys do such a great job and have you know sort of eased me into the role with open arms and you know I couldn't be more happier where I am right now. Ah brilliant brilliant now for people who aren't as into their football as me and you who perhaps <laughs> Sort of, you know, maybe don't dive below the, the top four leagues and only know that Sutton United have popped up a couple of times in history on the national scale. For me personally, it was the, when was it now? In January 88 or 89 yeah. when they played, beat, when they knocked the holders of the FA Cup at the time, Coventry out the. Yeah. out in the third round. Now, just briefly, you know, what's been the club's journey and how has it come from, you know, relatively, you know, unknown status to being the newest addition to the Football League? 
I mean, this is where doing a lot of Saturday United shows come in. Um, <laughs> I uh, I spoke to a lot of you know club, the club historian Mark Frake, who's an absolutely wonderful gentleman in the past, and a couple of other people who've spoken of the times when you know Sutton were still at least a modest club. They were in the, challenging an Isthmian League, or if, if better, what used to be what now is National League used to be called the Vauxhall Conference. Always were, you know, a mid-table side, always trying to be stable and looking to, you know, build up a team that was capable of challenging for automatic promotion uh, under the late Barry Williams, who he did, I'm sure he had a, you know, had a lot of challenges, but he had such a strong uh, unit, a very good group of players. Your Hanlons, your McKinnons, your, uh, at the time, you had probably the best midfield in, midfielder in the league and Mickey Stevens, uh, to name a few. They're, Mickey Joyce as well played. He's someone I love talking to a lot. He's always got a clip or two and doing those. He does the draw uh, sounds uh, on our <laughs> strikers, our key videos. So he's the reason why you hear funny sound uh, effects in the background. Um, but outside of that, yeah, he had a great role to play as well back then. But yeah, a lot of that team were part timers. A lot of that team were had full time jobs uh, in and around playing for Sutton and. You know, prior to that Coventry game that you're highlighting, they have uh, had a couple of good runs in a couple of competitions before. Beat, I think they met meet, meeting Middlesbrough, getting thumped by Norwich, uh, defeating Aldershot as well. In terms of successes prior to that, they did well in the FA Trophy in the early 80s as well. They've won the competition a fair few times. And so Wembley is a familiar place to them of sorts, but they haven't been there now for over 37 years. But... For Sutton, it is, you know, that was pretty much their watershed moment. The Coventry side, that like strong unit of which won that competition in 87, mm-hmm. coming over to Gandhi-Green Lane in the third round of the FA Cup, having beaten Ellsbury Sutton on the way to meeting them. It, it was a cr- quite remarkable achievement. And there's a lot of fans still, still to this day feel that it is one of the moments at the club that you know there's a fair argument to be said what they've just achieved could surpass that FA Cup side but yeah from that day forward it, it was more just a, a, a more or less a challenge to just stabilize the club and if you look forward into the 90s it was as fruitful as they were in the mm-hmm. 80s the 90s were more uh, an up and down sort of journey. You have a typical roller coaster, basically. You enjoy the highs, obviously, the FA Cup, but then in the early 90s, there was a fair few lows, a couple of relegations, as I'm not mistaken, down to Isthmian level. And then they had a, a very good game against Notts County in the FA Cup in 94 95, I think it was. Got to the first, second round, had a great performance at Meadow Lane. Just, just coming up short that day, but another tie where they could have could have been lucky. Then I think it was the period where John Reigns was manager with his brother Tony in the late nineties. They stabilised the club, brought them back up a level, up to I believe it was uh, Southern Counties Division, something around there. They built up a lot more of a status as a proper non-league club in that period. And in nineteen ninety nine, I think they they felt when they were in the Major League again, the Vauxhall Conference again, Nationwide Conference, I think it is now. They were, they were going to be getting a lot better. They were looking to become back, get back to what they used to know best, being a stable conference club, not giving, you know, not giving themselves any, you know, worries about what's going on behind them. Let's just try and give a consistent 
performance out of every game and being able to stabilize the club financially as well as keep looking towards the future. And Sue Rains Brothers did a fantastic job of doing trying to keep them up, but ultimately there's a story that goes around about the day they drew with or I think they drew with Altrincham, but with Altrincham already relegated, basically Altrincham brought them down with them. And the fans that day were somewhat I think on that day I was like, uh, somewhat, you know, they're disappointed to be relegated because sort of had a chance, but it didn't really go well on the pitch on that day. The race brothers left. A few managers come and go in the early noughties. They don't have as much success in the cup competitions. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty hard time as a Sutton uh, fan, as a player, or as a, you know someone who's involved with the club. Paul Doswell comes in in a mid-noughties, 2005-06 period. And this is when Sutton are in the Isthmian League. So they are in step six now of the English pyramid. And... They struggle a little bit at first under Doswell. He looks to find the best players in and around the area. He's bringing in the likes of Ian Baird and um, and Mickey Stevens and co to come and try and, you know, appeal the club a bit more to the fans and increase the likelihood that they could one day or, or somewhat be able to compete at a, you know, serious level in the National League. In that late night, like 08, 09, 10 period, Gander Green Lane was more or less still not a derelict ground, but it was not heavily visited. You had the 500 or so fans every game. Club's still popular to a degree. It had the it hasn't hadn't really been looked at as like a serious like place to go for many teams. And you go through the first three, four years of that period, Sutton just start to build some momentum. A couple of promotions. They get up to the National League South level and in about 2013, I think it is. And that period is when you start to see the em- the, the embers of what could be a very, very strong mm-hmm. fire in which they start building a team under Doswell. Doswell is still there, by the way. He's been there eight years now and he's still like determined to get the best that he can for this club before his legacy obviously will never be untarnished regardless of what people say about his you know opinions or what's what have you not however as they built up a momentum in that period there was you know a few football league clubs that were just struggling to stabilize themselves in league two and we, I think at the time we were top of the league and thought, you know what, we're going to meet those clubs that are hanging around in League Two and we'll see if we'll, we'll probably go toe to toe with them. Who knows? You also have behind Sutton the resurgences of Harrogate, Salford, uh, and, and, and Barrett to name a few that have all, that were all just creeping up the leagues, trying and accelerating at a pace that Sutton couldn't keep up with at the time. But eventually, you know, patience wears, wears thin for some and Doswell asked for a bit more of enthusiasm. In 2015, they changed the pitch from grass to 3G. Obviously a controversial decision at the time because that grass pitch was, you know, it's been a haven for Sun for the entire time they were a club. But the decision was made to spend half a, half a million pounds to get that pitch switched. And that feels like, Again, it's a topic we'll cover later on in terms of the community aspect of, you know, what that pitch did for the club. But it opened so many new possibilities for the club to make not only a decent revenue, but to also be able to 
appeal more now to fans around anywhere in the UK. Even people coming from outside of England were watching games at Sutton. It's it's bizarre. And yeah, in 2015 they changed the pitch. Crystal Palace were the first player, team to play on it. Uh, we had a young Arwan Bissaka there. Alan Pardew, Mark Bright were all present that night as well. Tim Vine, the comedian, who's a huge Sutton fan, was uh, was present as well. I'll never forget him strangling a giraffe that evening. But um, <laughs> beyond that, he had uh, he's a character to say the least. So he's he's, he's, he's definitely one of the more enthusiastic Sutton fans. But um, yeah, after Pal- after Palace, we, um, we that season I think was the best under Doswell. Which son I will have would have remembered up to this season. Finished twenty, I think twenty six matches unbeaten, uh, only losing a couple. I think just losing one to stop them from going on to finishing the season unbeaten. Um, uh, twenty seven and promoted as champions ahead of Ebbsfleet, who had a ridiculous run themselves, mm-hmm. but. Even still, to finish the season in that way, Jamie Collins lifted the trophy after the win against Chelmsford, uh, which was a professional performance to say the least. They were, you know, they were very good scenes. They were happy faces. The dressing room was a buoyant place, and you you start to wonder if you're a Sutton fan. Then is this the beginning of what we've been dreaming of for so many years? As many non-league clubs always dream of reaching the National League, as it is the top league in non-league football. There's so much you, you know, you thrive, you want to thrive in that atmosphere. You want to thrive in that league. You want to be able to put your name amongst those who have been league clubs. And as, as I said earlier, those fans who looked up at the side, struggling in League Two at the time, the Hartley Pools, your ex, your Stockports or, and co., all moving up and down, coming down leagues because they're not able to, you know, no fault of their own. Uh, they're struggling financially or they just haven't been good enough on the pitch to be able to survive in the professional division. So United moved up to the National League and are now on par with these clubs. Mm-hmm. And they're competing on an equal footing. <laughs> you think that the, the success of the 16 season was, was, was good. The 17 season, where... Well, it it, it, is, it was beggar's belief. There's been stories of FA Cup madness before. We've heard of the stories of, you know, of, of 89 and the absolute runs clubs have been on, non-league clubs in particular have been on. I brought Chesterfield already, how they got to the semi-finals in 97. It's beyond me. But um, that season in 2016-17 has... Is not forgotten. It won't be remembered for the league run because they finished 15th, 16th, if I'm not wrong, in 2017. But the the last minute winner against Cheltenham, the performance against Wimbledon in the replay, uh, Leeds United with Jamie Collins' penalty, and despite defeat, the an Arsenal side who just got thumped by Bayern Munich in the Champions League, <laughs> no less than a week ago, coming to Gandhi Lane. Uh, and being to be honest, they were put to the sword by Sutton that night. They, yes, they come out with the win and would go on to win the FA Cup, but they were put to the sword by Sutton. And honestly, Roy Digger hit the bar that evening. There was so much promising, um, promising signs up from the from the players that night that this could be something that the club could build on. And ultimately, yes, it was defeated, but. The national recognition, global, in fact, if you take take that into account, global recognition for such a 
you know, incredible achievement in 2017. It has, it still plays a part in obviously what happens from her, her going forward, but that performance alone against Arsenal, the victory against Leeds, especially because they wanted to one up Leeds for stopping them 6 0 way back in the 70s, Jack Charleston and all. <laughs> Uh, and it, yeah, it still plays on a lot of uh, fans' minds that particular game. One who I think said he won't forget Charlton, you know, absolutely giving it to one of the midfielders that day against them. And he 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 was he got a good old rollicking from the Sutton fans for it. <laughs> World Cup and all. Uh, it's uh, 2017 was an interesting um, a year as any, but Sutton didn't sit on their laurels in 2018. They got into the playoffs. After a fantastic season again in the National League, they had been, they were first for a long time in that period, but ultimately just could not, in the end, keep the form going. Macclesfield came out of the, came out of a, you know, a hard run of form at the time themselves, overhauled Sutton and the teams above them to win the league. And, you know, Sutton fans felt egregious that they didn't achieve promotion then because they thought that team was ready for the Football League then, mm-hmm. surprisingly. Had, in fact, behind the scenes, the club of the EFL application approved. They had these, you know, stadium upgrades approved, all, st- all sorts of stuff was, you know, accepted by the EFL. But all they needed to do now was actually achieve promotion and <laughs> ultimately missing out automatic, pro- automatic promotion. Oh, it wasn't a good thing at all for the fans. And a heartbreaking 3-2 defeat to Boreham Wood in the semi-final denying them of a place at Wembley, which is Bruce Elliott's dream, seeing Sutton United at Wembley. And he's never been quiet about that. We can tell you that for sure. It had had a team of disappointment uh, added already a very good season, but didn't have the uh, ultimate achievement. So Doswell goes on for about eight months the following season. To work to the point where I get introduced to the club by visiting them, and he announces, I think, sometime in March of 2019. I'm not wrong if I'm not wrong, mm-hmm. somewhere around there, he stopped down as manager of Sutton after near best part 15 years at the club. And yeah, at the time, a lot of fans were a were had mixed emotions. Obviously, sad. Some of the, a lot of the fans would be sad because obviously they only knew Sutton United for Paul Doswell. The two are intertwined in that sense, and he played such a huge part in the development, in the building of the club. I mean, yes, they still have the same stadium, but ignoring that part, the squads, the the hopes, <clears throat> Sutton's hopes for the future, all of those wonderful evenings uh, against Arsenal and and Leeds and. The, the you know heartbreak against Warren Wood, all of those were under his jurisdiction. And one of the people must have you know out thinking as an outspoken person, someone who has you know contrasting opinions on many different topics. One thing you can't take away from him from him was he chose the right time to like call it a day at Sutton <laughs> and look elsewhere to be able to build up his career because he's a South boy. He's from the coast. Uh, near near Haven, and there's a lot of you know links with him and Haven. Hence why he's there now. But when he stepped down, it was almost like now what for Sutton? What's next? Matt Gray, who'd been at the club as a coach, 
had overseen the training sessions in Doswell's like few final few months, took over the role in April May 2019, and since then, uh, like he's the only manager I've ever spoken to at Sutton. I've only ever run into Doswell twice, and yeah, I still have you know quips about talking to him. He's a, he's a very as I say, on the point character. So saying the right things around him is probably best if you want to, you know, just survive that particular conversation. But with Matt, it's a different sort of thing. You, you get a calmer approach from him. You get the, you get a more, you know, reserved figure, but he uses his energy in the right places. When he first joined the club, and that was the same time as I uh, came in, I mean, uh, you know, as a young person who <laughs> hasn't got too much experience talking to like proper football mm-hmm. people in terms of like at a club consistently. I mean, yes, I've met a few famous people in the game and all that, but that's that's different to this. It's where you try and get the best um, the best opinion of the manager you can without making it sound like he's simply answering a question. But he will tell you if something's right and if something's wrong. And early on in his tenure, when he was making signings such as George Chusoff, Dan Matsuzaka, um, Will Randall and Ben Goodliffe, all of these players that are coming, two of which have, have survived the early four. Omar Bugila coming in from Bromley. These three of actually, three of the five that survived. All of those were just to strengthen the team and improve them as much as he could. He brought in David Ajiboye later. And I watched the training session in the, in July where he started to like sort of mould the team how he saw it and how he could envision it coming later. In that stage, I thought he had it perfect. I thought he had it just about right. It's now just seeing how it goes on. Uh, does well in, how it does in a competitive element. That Sutton didn't win their first two games in pre-season. I, my first match covering Sutton was against Dulwich Hamlet in 2019 in a friendly. Uh, and that night, two goals from a former Sutton player now, Dylan Curley, were enough to win. But the signs were there early on what he was trying to do, what he was building. In the end, it built up to the point where I thought he had it right, but the ultimate test was against the Chelsea team and they played it under 23 side. This is a side that had Tina Anjorin, a, a familiar name in Billy Gilmore. Uh, George <laughs> McEachern was in that team. Mark Gahey, who plays for Swansea now. Um, Tarek Lamptey, a young Tarek Lamptey played in that game, now Brighton. A lot of that ta- a lot of that team that came to start for that friendly, a good number of those have now gone on to bigger and better things. Um, Billy Gilmore, surprise, surprise, a Champions League winner played at Gandagree Lane. That's uh, something I didn't think we'd ever <laughs> see. But, you know, it has, it's happened now. Um, but yes, we we saw a performance that day. So I took, went behind through Charlie Brown early on in the second half. First half was pretty dull. But it's, uh, it's a friendly, you don't expect it. But when Chelsea to the least, so I was actually to the game from Matt Gray was get, get at them. Encourage yourselves to for, to encourage yourselves to just keep going, keep getting at them, and that I could you can always hear Matt, hence why I know what I'm saying is <laughs> near to be true. I can always hear Matt on the touchline on the far side. Our Gashi faces the benches, so I can always hear what he's saying, and I could hear him it, give, just encouraging the team get forward, give yourselves a chance. 
we get they get back into the game uh, through I think Aaron Jarvis scored the equalizer, and then Jamie Collins scoring a corner uh, from about thirteen or so, three yards out, thirteen or so minutes to go. You certainly were about to win that game. Tariq Lamptey scores a deflected shot in the last minute uh, to tie the game <laughs> up at the end. That game was so good. I thought. We've not only seen potential Chelsea future stars here, but we've just seen the best that one can do against what is a near decent enough side. That's at least, even though they are under an academy team or under 23 side, that's at least somewhat League One, League Two level in terms of the quality of football. And I know it's a big dis- difference between Chelsea and Sutton United, but even still, that demonstrated for me what Matt was planning. And it led to obviously a difficult period in the 1920 season. And we thought then, well, now what? Is he going to be able to develop this side to be able to challenge for the playoffs? <laughs> and he's promised, as he promised at the start of his tenure, sadly not. I think we struggled in our first seven games. We only won one and drew, drew one, drew one and lost five. Yeah, it didn't look good then. What what was what do you think then caused the change? What was it that's triggered the success this season? Torquay United on November the sixteenth, if I'm not wrong, away from home. We, I just as I mentioned, our first seven games, one win in seven. We were in the relegation zone, and I remember a trip back from Solihull Moors, we were still in there. But I, I sat next to Matt on the coach and I just, not for very long, but I just spoke to him candidly about, you know, this isn't a good start, Matt. We've got a few problems. Um, like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to talk, not as a commentator here, but as a, let's say, as a fan who I'm sure would have other fans' opinions on their, on my mind, because I talk to them. I'm like the first person they'll talk to seeing as I have to speak to Matt on a consistent basis. And the, the, you know the general feeling the fans that travelled to Solihull were very disappointed. They were not happy. Things weren't going so well. In October, Sutton drew with Stockport and lost to Emsley in the 90th minute. This is after the Emsley goalkeeper had to go off with an injury. So we thought if an outfield player is going in goal, we have a chance here. But you know, those Igwe scored a penalty, and that really it sunk a few. And I think Pugil was said to be. Uh, quite inconsolable, uh, inconsolable after that moment. And he had to do an interview about his experiences with North Korea, in North Korea with Lebanon uh, as a World Cup qualifier after that. So his professionalism <laughs> on that day was quite incredible. Just to go from, you know, again, being absolutely gutted about a penalty call going against him to having the wit about him to, you know, you know, buck up his trend and get back to you know, the day job and talk about life in a, uh, in a country that's no more, no more unique than others, but more unique in some cases. It's crazy, crazy. And he's, he's just, he's a, he's a great gentleman for that, but it's the, it's, I think that's the attitude that Matt instilled in this side. <laughs> it all about patience, all about when your time comes, take it. And his, and his philosophy built into that when we went to Torquay. And I speak highly of this day because our form would turn around from that day. We'd go there, we won 2-1 with a crazy tactical switch in the first 12 minutes. 
and I'm sat on the main stand at Torquay, so it's quite high up, but you can see the whole pitch and beyond the coastline uh, of South England. But that afternoon, it was a very cold day as well, so it still plays on my mind, but <laughs> that day, he switched Carl Reed, who was a left winger normally, to the right, and Adji Boye, a right midfielder, to the, or winger, to the left. In the 10th minute, he switched them again. And the first thing Adjib Boye did when he got that ball on the left-hand side, get it, brings it down and starts running towards the penalty area where the tall key player is retreating. And as soon as even they could think about trying to get the ball off him, he's already shot and beaten the Brazilian goalkeeper, Lucas Kovalan, to open the scoring. And it went for, for me and my co-commentator that day. We went absolutely bananas and... I, honestly, I thought, how have we not been burned by the Torquay fans yet after celebrating that one? They got back into it. Ben Wins equalised. Harry Peterson would score the winner from a free kick uh, after 66-something minutes, something late on in the game. On-loan goalkeeper Nick Zanev took the free kick high up into the air, missed a Torquay and Sutton player. I think it was Omar Bukil. Challenging with uh, Cameron, I think, Carl Cameron. They both missed it. It fell for Harry Beautyman, who in the had it in the box, settled on it, just settled for a minute, and then lashed a shot into the back of the net. And on that day, it just felt like the turn, the turn of form for Sutton. Mm. It felt like a watershed moment. And that performance instilled some belief. The thing, something that I don't think fans even had before the Torquay game, because I thought Torquay here well-equipped side, Gary Johnson's the manager, they're surely going to be very, very, they're surely going to trounce us today because we've been on a horrible run. Quite the opposite. And in that period alone, I felt personally, I've been spoken to him after that performance, his side equipped themselves so well and they put up a performance against a team that would on any other day would have thumped them at home. They're very good at home. So, for him to do that, for him to get them to win at Torquay, it's the spark that lit the fire, and it began that run of form. Okay, yeah, they lost to Bromley next time out, but some decent results in between mm-hmm. for a great blitz in the Christmas period. I think three wins in a row, scoring West Park 18 goals. I think we had, uh, we'd be working twice. Wrexham and also, I'm trying to remember who else we toppled over. I'm sure we beat somebody else at Gandhi Lane on the way there, but I remember Omar Pugil scoring a, a hat-trick uh, at home against, I guess, Spoking? Oh, no, I guess Wrexham, I think it was. It was against Wrexham. So he got a hat-trick against Wrexham. Uh, we had a 6-2 win against Woking, and then in the reverse fixture, Pugil scored one of the best goals I've ever seen. I think it's been, it was dubbed <laughs> as the Vanderbilt in the lockdown period of 2020. It was dubbed as the goal of the season in the in Vanarama's world in the Vanarama World Cup of Goals tournament thing. <laughs> <laughs> it beat Richard Bridley that really gave Notts County fans a right old run for their like they ran for the hills for, for <laughs> after that one. Uh, the sheer nature of it, but um, yes, it was yeah, incredible, uh, incredible forces in that Christmas period, and that working goal tip against for some Brigil's goal against working typified that. Sutton would struggle for a long time after that. I think 
just they did enough in the period in the mid-season, I think, just to build the form. And we get to like February, drawing to Ebbsfleet away from home. I think we're ending up one that ended one-one. Beat Torquay 2 0 at home, but doing a league double. Uh, we had that a defeat at Halifax. I remember we should have got a point out of that game, even even all three. And it was a boggy night as well. The picture was horrible at the Shay. Uh, hey, I, I, I was the sole representative for the media team there. So everything that was done then, I was all me. And I still vividly remember the horrible because it's rugby's played at Halifax, it's a northern town. You expect them to. You expect them to love the the other version of ball sports other than just football. But even on that night, Sutton equipped themselves very well. Just needed a perform, needed to get something from that game. Hard done by. Outside of that, we went into we went into the Hartlepool game thinking with the pandemic looming and you know football's uncertain future, you know, hanging in the balance. That Hartlepool game, because it played a part, obviously, eventually. That Hartlepool game, the first time round, which ended 1-1, none of us knew then it would be the last time we'd see some, but we felt that football would be gone for just a bit because this was, you know, manifesting itself. There were some worries around the club. There were some worries. And, you know, to think that we had 3,000 people there because the Premier League and Championship, uh, all the EFL had been suspended because of the pandemic worries and the general feeling of, you know, is football going to be able to continue because of this? I don't know. But we got quite a a lot of attention from, you know, fans around the country for still going ahead and having 3,000 people there unmasked at the time (laughs) before even a lockdown was even a thing. It was quite remarkable. But that Hartlepool game was the last game of the season that time. And... None of us thought after that we'd not see football again. So, yeah, pretty good, in my opinion, how Matt's done after the talking. Really has, really has. Now, I mean, you've had an incredible season this year, been, been standout, absolute superb performances throughout the year. Um, now, I I have to ask, because you mentioned about the, about the pitch, since it's come up, has the issue, I mean regarding the pitch sort of dampened emotions at all at the club or is everybody still, you know, really exuberant and just getting on with it? Um, It's a mixture of both. I think you can never have a a, a clear cut answer to that particular Mm -hmm. question. It's been the forefront of most of the discussions since we've secured promotion, but you know, like from my point of view, like I'm, I'm all for 3G pitches. I've played on them myself, uh, not just as a you know as some, when in my younger years I played, I played well on them and never had too many worries about them. Um, but I can see why the EFL don't like them because I think they just live on that laurel of we've always had grass pitches. Yes, we had that little period in the 80s when QPR Luton had a couple of those, but mm-hmm. we they, we know about the risks involved in having those pitches and the heights and injury prospects that players can accrue from doing that. Sutton's was probably one of the, is or is one of the best 3G pitches that's played on uh, ever, in my opinion, because there's never, I've never seen anyone really have any severe problems with that pitch. Most injuries that happen just come from contact with another player or just come from, 
you know, the typical, you know, or, or just typically happen because he's injured himself. It can't be the pitch because on a grass pitch, you probably do the same thing. Can I but ask you, if, sorry, yeah. Ahmed, can I ask you, uh, regarding the pitch, how much, you, how how open is it for community access? Is a is there a great take-up there with, with the community? Or especially pre-lockdown, was there a great take-up uh, with the use of the pitch? There is quite a lot of usage of that pitch. Um, to, my no, to my recollection, the lot, before lockdown 2020, it had been booked about... Non-Sutton related, obviously. That pitch was booked by uh, about five or six times for other uses by different, uh, for different people. So that varied from filming to, um, to yeah, filming material to, um, you know, other, you know, people just public wanting to use the pitch as it, you know, as it is in a stadium, not many clubs offer the option during the season even to let their pitch go, uh, to, free of uh, to the public uh, to uh, charge at a reasonable rate, uh, including obviously the facilities involved as well. But the pitch had a lot of usage. It had the women's team who play on it. They have the under twenty, under eighteens playing on that pitch. The academy squads as well. Uh, I mentioned obviously the community. So this is the disability teams. This includes. Uh, cerebral palsy. Um, look, there's a lot of sites, so I have a lot of teams, and uh, I've seen nearly every single one of them play at least once or twice. But, uh, there is that is probably one of the, the you know, sad parts of it being ripped up because that had so, that pitch played a role in many people's lives, either post pandemic or pre pandemic. Mm. Because you can see that Sutton depended on that, not only to be able to stage matches in the National League, so less, less postponements and all that, but, and that's not the principle of it, of it being there. It encouraged the community just to, you know, use it as a way of, you know, come together or to come together and play the common game and also to use it for ver- the pitch to be used for a variety of other things such as events and, um, you know, they used to hold uh, old filming uh, evenings in uh, off-season oh, on beautiful. that pitch. Beautiful. Yeah, and, yeah, they used to have, like, cinema. So you could come outside, you pay about fiver to get in and any <laughs> random movie that the club could, or the projector could play, someone, you could go in and watch it. And it was just incredible. Like, I remember seeing a flyer for one of those. I never got to go to them, but they advertise it. I'm sure they're going to do it again at some point. And if they do, it'll probably work beyond that pitch, probably at the recreational ground or something next to it. But that, yeah, that pitch was durable, versatile, and had a big part in the community because they, the Sutton are, you know, a family club. They care obviously for everyone around mm-hmm. uh, and beyond whoever is, you know, heavily invested in Sutton. There is a strong feeling uh, of, you know, love for the club's, you know, brash approach to how to, you know, sticking with their laurels and believing that what they have is better than going onto, you know, than going into onto grass again. Mm-hmm. But it will be a sad loss for the community. I think they are the big, the big losers here. 
in that sense because on Sunday the women's team played in a cup semi-final against London Lou London Lionesses, uh, which was it was their last game of the season, and they had to play that at Hackney Marshes, a full ninety or so minutes away from Gander Green Lane uh, on the on public transport, maybe an hour or so on, by car, and on that day. On, on that particular day, I thought they just didn't look right because they're not in a familiar surrounding. They're playing mm-hmm. in a public space. This is normally um, this normally happens to be played at a stadium or in a you know in a in a place or like that can stage a few people. We I just sit, I can tell you from experience, I've never had to sit next to the pitch to commentate on a game of football before. <laughs> that was the first time I've done it. So you can. We couldn't go near um, either bed or either set of teams. There's no benches, so we had to stand or be as far away from them as possible. Basically, on next to either corner flag when Sutton were attacking. In the first <laughs> half, it's one side, and then for the second half, to move to the other side. It's almost a, it's a tricky task trying not to say the wrong things because they can actually hear you now. You're there and the player is here. And the ball's gone out for a throw. So you're just saying it's gone out for a throw. Uh, I know you're waiting for just like five or six seconds for them to go away. Right, okay, good. Just go with the game. Mate, it's a challenge. That is a challenge. So yeah, the pitch is missed sorely. And I think, yeah, it felt weird on Sunday in particular because of how important the game was for Sutton's mm-hmm. women's side. That, you know, it felt unfamiliar. It felt weird. I do think, though, that it will be missed greatly by everyone who had the ability to use it. So much so that the last event that was meant to be played on there, if someone hadn't made it, was Torquay Pirates against the Dutchman, which is like an annual game that's played between uh, work colleagues. But uh, uh, a lot of our friends at the media team are, are you know, in contact with them have held that game at Gander Green Lane every year. For the first time, it's going to be played in Slough. And whilst Slough's a nice place, I'm happy to go there this Saturday, it will be a very strange experience because it's not going to be somewhere we are familiar with. It'll have a 3G pitch. It just won't be in the place that they know and love more than anything. So, yeah, we'll miss it. But one thing's for sure, we won't be allowed to put our feet on grass next season. Not even my feet are allowed, that's for sure. <laughs> that's a shame. That is a shame. It is, it is. But you've got lots of things to look forward to next season, going up into League Two. Brand new experience for Sutton. What yep. are the things you, you, you're looking forward to most being part of the Football League? Well, next season will be a unique season for, on so many levels because... I, I'm, I mean, you know, touch wood and all. The fans will be back in now for a full season. This season, obviously, mm-hmm. without uh, fans has been a very hard one. We've, I can tell you for sure, when you're in a soulless ground, not just Gander Green Lane, but this season I've been privileged to be able to work at Premier League matches and UEFA Champions League and Europa League games in and around the continent. I can tell you how soulless it feels to be in an arena or a stadium when there's no one there to watch it. And the only, I think the only exception was um, this season where I think some fans on two occasions was, and they were both in European games. The first of which was when Michelin played Ajax. And it was about a hundred local fans who'd been picked by the club to watch that game. 
that sat far away from the benches in the other side of the of the ground. Um, I was there for that one, and it felt weird, even with a hundred. But there was some noise, but it was a weird experience. And when two thousand Tottenham fans were at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium for a game against Royal Antwerp in the group stage. On those occasions, they had contrasting numbers, yes, but they were still interesting, you know, scenarios. Contrasting that to the Sutton, you are in an open space. It is an open, obviously open top stadium. You're in open space and there's nothing you can hear except the PA system when the match is going on, the players on the pitch and the two benches. Compare that, because I never got to do the matches with fans except for Hartlepool this season. Compare that to when you have a full house. A full house is a much more vibrant atmosphere. And I, for one, think that with this historic achievement, the, the sooner we have more numbers in, the better. And I think I'm hopeful, again, touch wood, we do get more than 2,000 in for our first EFL game, uh, which is more likely going to be a little later than originally planned. You never know, can't take any risks with the um, with uh, with the pitch reconstruction. But um, there's a, yeah, uh, 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 me and I'm sure a lot of other fans will be hopeful that we'll have fans back in the ground for that. Secondly, where and what? Um, for once, we're going to be happy to say that we're going to be in the first round of the FA Cup for once because we've had horrible <laughs> luck in the last two years in the last qualifying round. Uh, probably last season in, a, in torrid conditions. Uh, I watched that game on the way up to Liverpool and I was thinking, really, this is not good. How are they struggling on this on, on this year, all years? And, you know, they, we, we prepared for that game. Our media prepared for that game extensively. And to us to lose it, and Matt was livid that day, is what I understand the, the comments were from my colleagues afterwards. And his interview demonstrated that. He's, he wasn't happy to go out of the cup for a second year in a row. The year before was Billy Ricky, and oh, we're not going to go into that. That was too much for even <laughs> uh, I wasn't even there, but even I couldn't handle it. But, First round next year, yes, guaranteed. guaranteed. And the League Cup. Well, that's a much more exciting prospect because, first of all, the League Cup, you could actually play proper EFL opposition. So that's going to definitely draw a crowd. No matter who we draw against, we're all you know praying for a reasonably good championship team first round in the southern section. But if we get to round three, we can play Premier League teams. So we are hopeful if we get through the first two rounds... Good chance of the, of a, of a opportunity in 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 some cases at Premier League opposition at Gander Green again. We'd love it to be at our ground. We'd be equally as uh, excited. Well, I would. I don't know when if away fans will be allowed back into uh, grounds again, but I'd be equally as excited to ha- have fans at the away game. But it'd be even better at Gander Green because it deserves another big night uh, of cup football. We have the Papa John's trophy. I just want free pizza, to be honest. That's my honest opinion on that one. Uh, it, yeah, it'll be a competition. We'll, we'll, we'll take it as seriously as, we, as possible because there's a lot of games. I think you can gather that already. A lot mm. of games to be played next year. And the league itself, well, it's great to be in there. I don't think it gets a lot of um, respect to League Two because it is the lowest of the top four divisions. It's not 
really highly regarded as such and does deserve a bit more respect in my opinion not just because we've become a team in that league but you don't miss a lot of things in that level that maybe later on you get caught up on in the future plus for me as a commentator there's so much more data so I don't have to go rummaging through the deepest darkest (laughs) sites on the internet to find the most outlandish things about opposition teams or specific players so thank goodness there's a bigger data field but um Yes, there, there's a few trips next season I'm excited to make. I'm excited to certainly go to what well, I've been willing in my like deepest, like d- deepest footballing, you know, interest has been to make the longest journey possible. And that's obviously to Carlisle. So an ambition of mine will be to go to Carlisle next season, come what, no matter what. And I'm hoping it doesn't clash with anything during the early part of next season. If it does, I'm going to be so disappointed. Um, Bradford next season should be a good trip. They're a well-followed club, and mm-hmm. uh, there's so much, you know, good there's show. so much, there's so much about them that I found interesting when they were in the Premier League 20 odd years ago. Uh, they they're such a well-run club up there, even though they are going through a tough time recently. But that's a new venture for us there too. Um, plenty of new teams to play against. Salford, we've had we've locked horns with them a few times in non-league. We've beaten them, in fact, the last time we played against them at Gander Green Lane, we beat them 2-1 so if we can even do as well as we did that day who knows but um yeah there's a there's just a few of the trips i'm looking forward to next season but there is so much to you know get excited about and yeah it's never a bad time to become a subtle fan it's never too late either <laughs> now i mean you say you've been talking about gander screen lane what's the experience like there as a supporter you know is it is it a pre-lockdown was it a, a loud atmosphere we're hoping supporters will be back the other thing I've got to ask and it is a bit cheeky of me I always like asking guests from clubs here what's the food like what's, <laughs> what, what's the burger hut the pie hut like down there, down there? any good uh, I mean I, I don't eat too much food there because you do have to talk a lot but I can tell you they're the best cheesy chips down there. That's for sure. Uh, <laughs> the tea's pretty good. Roses makes a great cup of tea, a great hot chocolate as well. Um, we had a, a chocolate bar scandal one day. So Hel Sahi, our commentator uh, extraordinaire, who does is a massive Sutton fan, uh, brought a chocolate bar one day. And we never forgotten about that. So <laughs> it got it went missing halfway through our commentary, and I was wondering mm. how is it. How has it gone from where it was right next to me? We're talking meters away from me. So me looking at the picture, it's not there the next second after that. We've never got to the bottom of it. So the less said about that one, the better. Otherwise, we have to open a whole new can of worms there. Yeah. Um, also, yeah, food-wise, it's a very it's it's all right. I think you're gonna get you're gonna get your money's worth going there. Some good people there, that, you know, do the catering, and they are volunteers as well in the sense that they do they do it out of their own interest rather than, you know, being third parties and all that. Um, as for the experience as a fan, it's an authentic ground. It's been, you know, it's it's been there almost over 100 years now. The club has existed 123. They've played in numerous places in the early years of their existence, but they've been playing at Gandhi Relay for a large chunk of that time. And... Yeah, it used to be a big oval ground, typical of many that you, if you remember old Wembley, the Empire mm-hmm. Stadium had a 
huge running track around it. So you could, the Olympics were held there. Greyhound racing, Speedway used to be held there. It was the same with Sutton to a degree. Athletics, Greyhound racing, and uh, some, the, the odd Speedway race. It was very rare in that case, in those years to have Speedway at Sutton. But um, yeah, as the years went by, I think, you know, the clubs sort of wanted to take control of the ground and just get a little bit more of a, you know, a stable a stable number of people in and yeah it, it was it was a typical overground you had one stand on one side you had the main stand the main grandstand there, and then the shoebox where our gantry is on the other and in 2015 if i'm not wrong they sort of switched or it was a lot earlier than that, actually a lot earlier on they switched the ground a bit more because the neighbor the house is next to the ground are not far away from the goal. So you can imagine <laughs> this much space isn't a lot for a, where a goal goes in or if the ball goes quite over the bar where it might land. So <laughs> Some angry neighbours. Quite a few. <laughs> quite a few angry neighbours. Uh, yeah, so what's, what had to adjust it a little bit. They had to bring a terrace in, a small terrace on the Gander Green Lane side of the ground erect some uh, nets behind the stand so the ball doesn't go into the gardens. I can tell you a couple I have landed there in the time I've been at Sutton. Maybe more, who knows? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and then in 2015, when after renovating the pitch, they narrowed a side of the ground to become... Because the request from Paul Doswell was the fans on one side of the ground are too far away from the action. Mm-hmm. So... To encourage the, you know, to encourage the atmosphere to be a lot better, a lot more enthusiastic, he asked for when the pitch was renovated to bring one side of the ground closer to, uh, closer to the pitch. And now it's quite literally very close to the pitch. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that for sure. But um, a consequence of that is that the pitch now was, it's not well. The stand is on a slope, but the pitch isn't. So the pitch is level, but the stand is on a slope. So it sort of looks like that. It's a bit of a slope. <laughs> it's a weird place to be, honestly. Uh, when you stand, if you're on a wayfire standing, you're wondering why does it feel like I'm standing on a hill in that sort of sense? It's like Wilston, I'm, as I'm sure you know, has a massive slope compared to the one Sutton has, but it's huge. Uh, it's a huge slope, but I'm glad to say, contrast. They're more or less, you feel like you're standing on a hill if you're in a way fan in the Sutton ground. But the overall atmosphere, it's an old school ground. A lot of people love that. And if Sutton play well on a day, like on a good day, you're going to get a very good reaction from the fans. They make a lot of noise anyway, even if they're not winning. But yeah, yeah I think it's one of, in my time that I've been at Sutton, one of the finer atmospheres I've had the privilege of being at. And I've seen a few. So. It's going to be hard to top ones at Gander Green Lane uh, next season if uh, a few EFL uh, big big names start to turn up there. It should be great fun. You certainly sold it to me. I, <laughs> I hope the people listening will be eager to come down as well. I'm curious about the slope and things like that. I love that. And the cheesy chips. Yeah, so you I'll... can bring your spirit <laughs> level if you want to, just to make sure how much of a slope it has. So it does sound great fun. That does sound great fun. Well, Ahmed, I've got to say thank you so much for today. It's been great to get the, you know, sort of the, the whole look at the, the Club 360, shall we say. It's yeah. really given us good insight into what to expect as you, as you take the next step on the, on this journey. 
we wish you the best of luck. I really yeah, do. So you. hope you enjoyed the football league. It's a wonderful <laughs> place. It really yeah. is. You get it, is. <laughs> it sounds it's, very exciting to me already. It's going to be great fun. Great fun for you, I'm sure, next year. People listening at home who want to follow the Sutton story, want to, you know, maybe follow follow your story on social medias, where is the best place for them to connect with you? Well, with me, uh, I'm not the biggest social media guru. Uh, you might find I talk a lot more about Manchester United than Sutton United. But uh, if you want to hear, at least when I do talk about Sutton <laughs> and all things connected to it, uh, you can visit me at, at ahmednoor 94 So you'll find my you'll find that easily on Twitter, all lowercase 94. Sutton United's official Twitter page mm-hmm. is basically where you get all the up-to-date news on Sutton's pitch renovation, any news in terms of the transfers, and uh, it's going to be a big summer, so a lot's going to be happening. And we're, we're going to be there to cover it. Uh, and if you also want to follow... Us, the people I contribute the commentary for, SUFC TV. You can also do that on Twitter as well. Uh, so you had also on Instagram and on Facebook. So just type the name of the club in and you should be able to find it. And yeah, just me, if you want to find me, at Ahmed94. And Sutton United are on three different Instagram, Twitter and Facebook platforms. So that's where you'll be able to find us. Oh, brilliant. Well, ah, shout out to the Gandamonium as well. The Gandamonium <laughs> have some expletive nonsense, but it's very good nonsense. I can tell you that for sure. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoy their tweets whenever they come up, especially when they've been doing matches this season or following them when we've been commenting on them. So at Gandamonium on Twitter as well. Just give them a bit of love. Great brilliant. Blog Thanks. As well. Good late plug there. Good late plug. I always like that. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> always going to get, make sure you get everyone in it's like the Oscars you're trying to thank everyone oh, but yes. you've just re- you only got so little time to do it so yeah <laughs> but say you, you're quite right because that's it for today everyone uh, so once again big thank you to Ahmed for joining us and giving us this great insight into Sutton uh, but till next time I'm Adam at Ucrafot24 you can follow me across all the social medias as well And to everyone at home, take care and stay safe. Goodbye for now.